During the Buddhist time, someone once asked the Buddha, why are your disciples so calm and so radiant? And what he said is that they do not lament over the past. They do not hanker for things in the future. They maintain themselves on whatever comes. Therefore, they are serene. A friend of mine once asked a monk who was in his 80s and had been a monk for more than 50 years, where does your mind wander to when it's not with the breath? (laughs) A mischievous question. And this monk replied, sex. one appreciates his candor and his (laughs) (laughs) self-knowledge. Oftentimes, when our minds wander, they go to planning. Now, we, of course, may be planning to have sex. (laughs) This is what I want to talk about tonight. Not not sex, actually, but (laughs) the planning mind, where the mind often goes as a habit over and over and over again. We plan what we're going to say, what we're going to do, what we're going to wear, what we're going to read, what we're going to buy, what we're planning on buying. We plan what we want to get rid of, what we want to get done, what we want to become. We plan, and you already know this, this is not new information after nine days of sitting. We plan who we're going to talk to, who we're going to not talk to now, (laughs) who we want to email, who we want to call up, who we want to write to. We plan our conversations. We find ourselves explaining and describing and asking and pleading and shouting and defending and screaming. We are very much a society of planners. We're a a society of list makers, actually. Yeah. Even in situations where we don't need to make lists, oftentimes we find ourselves making lists, if not written down, then certainly in the mind over and over again. I'm tempted to take a poll of how many of you wrote uh, any kind of list that you want to remember for when you get home. Because even, you know, even on vacations or even on retreat, we oftentimes find ourselves making lists. I remember many years ago after a retreat going into the front office, and I had a list. You know, I wanted to buy a cushion from the center and this and that. And for some reason, I thought I was somewhat original. And I went in, and the person who was in the front office said, ah, All yogis have lists. (laughs) This was a phenomena that she was enormously familiar with, that all yogis have lists. So it is true that planning is necessary. And it's not as if we can, in our life, get away with not planning at all. Certainly, it's a part of many jobs and occupations. It's an aspect of parenting, of course, that's really essential, or taking care of anyone, planning is essential. 
And so we don't want to get confused and think that, you know, now we're not supposed to ever plan. We'd be in big trouble. Um, some time ago at uh, CIMC at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, where I, I teach most of the time, uh, we had someone come who came for eight weeks uh, to a, a weekly beginner's class, and he seemed to thrive. He seemed to love it. And he talked each week about how his life was changing and about how much he loved the practice and this and that. And then at the end of the eight weeks, um, we had kind of a go around and you know everybody spoke and spoke about their experiences and this and that. And he was very sad. He was very kind of despondent. And he said, you know, I, I love this practice. I, I, um, I just enjoy it so much. It's changed so much in my life, but I'm going to have to stop. And so he was asked, why in the world would you have to stop if you love this practice so much? And he said, well, you know, you talk about being in the present moment all the time. And so, of course, that means that one can't plan or, or um, this or that. And I happen to be a city planner. I'm a, I'm a planner for the city of Cambridge so in order to keep my job I have to stop practicing (laughs) so of course this was explained that he could continue to be in the present moment and be mindful of planning as well which is what we do when we need to plan is to see if we can make it part of the practice We may sometimes think that it's not necessary to plan, especially when we're in circumstances like these where, you know, food just arrives and bell rings and everything's kind of laid out for us and and we are kind of really encouraged to let go of uh, planning quite a bit. If we don't take responsibility for planning what is necessary in life for the necessities of life, Other people, of course, end up having to do it for us. We can find ourselves deluded about conditions that need to be taken care of, that only we can take care of. I um, have to uh, kind of confess early in this talk that um, my husband, Michael, publicly in a a Dharma talk a few months ago uh, announced to the group that he actually wished that I would plan a little more. <laughs> so I know this terrain quite, quite, quite well. <laughs> um, we can, in a sense, being in this environment, get a little bit institutionalized. As at times, I remember um, coming out after a three-month retreat, and um, of course, in this environment, things do appear. And uh, a very good friend picked us up and started to drive us home. And on the way home, she said, well, do you want to stop at the grocery store, you know, pick up some food? And I was totally blank. I thought, you know, food? It doesn't just appear, you know? (laughs) Grocery store, buying food, preparing it, making it? You know, the whole thing was just a very foreign idea after three months here. We also may be afraid to plan at times. There may be aversion, or we might find ourselves procrastinating. We might might find ourselves avoiding planning because of anxiety, or because of fear, or because of 
not wanting to commit ourselves. The avoidance of planning actually, as we know, doesn't work. You know, it makes a mess in some way, in some way or another. Just as avoiding our life makes things difficult for ourselves and others, to avoid planning makes things difficult as well. So the idea to bring this into practice is to plan and at the same time to see if we can be aware, mindful of anxiety, to see if we can make it into a practice, encompass it, allow it, make it part of our practice instead of seeing it as other than, separate from. In trying to make decisions, planning around decisions, we may not be able to. There may be a great deal of confusion or doubt. We may find ourselves second-guessing ourselves. For smaller decisions, very small decisions that sometimes seem to loom large in our mind as if they're so important when they're really not, Perspective helps so much, you know, to, to see if we can cern, discern between things that are very, very small and then bigger issues or questions in life. And when part of our practice is to see if we can bring a sense of perspective in. And instead of obsessing and being concerned about that, which really is, is quite small, to, um, to see if we can work with it in a different way to see if we can get behind ourselves and then remain mindful of our reactions. In other words, when we set a certain course, to follow it out, to experiment with following it out. You know, certainly if it doesn't work, we can change. We can do something different most of the time. But to see if we can get behind ourselves and experiment and then reassess after we've tried it. Living the decision out and being mindful of the voices of doubt without believing them to necessarily be voices of guidance, of wisdom. With the bigger decisions in our life that require thinking and planning and reflecting, stepping aside and listening deeply, in a way, letting the voices fight it out without our interference. No? I mean, seeing if we can try not to take sides. Because usually with big decisions, we're thinking, 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 and supporting it in some way, coming up with a real case for it. And that lasts for a while. And then all of a sudden, a little thought arises on the opposite side. And then we go to town with that other thought, and then go after that thought, and then support that side of things. And then again, this little tiny thought trickles up, and then we're back on the other side of things. To let the voices argue themselves without our trying to make peace or interfere or try to make the voices agree, seeing if we can step aside, not take sides, but instead to see what is fueling both sides. You know, is desire occurring? Is wanting happening? Is aversion occurring? Is fear happening? You know, kind of what is fueling both sides of the story? And if we can see this, then sometimes things are a little bit clearer. Seeing if we can listen and be very patient until wisdom arises on its own. In planning, 
when we do need to plan, there's a really beautiful kind of example of kind of proper planning or appropriate planning in um, refining your life, which is um, uh, Uchiyama Roshi's uh, kind of commentary on Dogen's instructions to a Zen cook. So it's instructions to someone cooking in a meditative center, um, meditation center, wanting to cook with their whole heart, with their whole life, as practice, and offering their cooking, offering their food as practice as well. So real meditation, real practice. So these are instructions to the cook. And then Uchiyama's, Roshi's um, uh, kind of commentary on this or, or ways to understand this. And the instructions to the cook is to, the night before a meal is supposed to happen the next day, to prepare, to have the right ingredients on hand, to check out what ingredients are necessary, to gather together those ingredients, to write it on the chalkboard and put it up on the board and make sure everybody knows what the meal is going to be the next day, and to do this with all of one's attention, with great, impeccable, uh, loving, and caring attention each moment with the understanding that the meal may never happen, that the next day may never occur. Yeah. This is a meditative way to plan. Yeah. It's really on the edge because one is absolutely taking care of life, taking care of oneself, taking care of others, wholehearted in one's participation in life, doing what needs to be done and not avoiding that and not pretending and not backing away with the wisdom, the understanding that we have no idea what is going to happen from moment to moment. No idea whether anyone's going to eat our food. So no attachment possible. Doing everything in our life in this way. One of our questions, one of our meditative questions regarding planning is, when is planning necessary and when is it habitual? Retreats and sittings of any sort reveal this to us because we can see throughout these nine days, we can see how much planning has happened and we can begin to see how flimsy it is, how unimportant it is. And it'll be so interesting to go home And notice what comes out of the many, 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 I know, moments of planning that have occurred here. What's the actual experience? What actually happens over the millions of plans that generally occur? So sitting and retreats really reveal this habit to us. They help us to see, the sits and retreats in general really help us to see Um, planning that is necessary and planning that is absolutely habitual. The intention to be present reveals to us where we enjoy dwelling, where we like to hang out, regardless of what life is and where life is and being in the rhythm of life. We get to see the ways that we step out of life, 
and lock into plans and ideas and concepts. Such an interesting thing on retreats is to notice ourselves planning for interviews. You know, I don't know if you notice this. Noticing oneself rehearsing an interview, where, of course, the idea is to come in and just show up and to, um, you know, reveal yourself in some way. It is true that the word interview is a weird word. You know, this is true. It does sound as if one had better plan, you know, because it does sound that like one is, something is expected of you, you know, something along the lines of uh, someone, you're going to come in and, you know, someone's going to say, the teacher's going to say, do you really deserve to be here? Do you deserve to practice? You know, something along those lines. At um, CIMC once, uh, someone came in and um, saw the sign for interviews, because we have interviews there in different places in the center, and says interview, and then it says where the teacher is and where to show up and what time. So we have signs around that guide people, and we have interviews there. So someone just, um, I guess, wandered into the center, and he saw this sign, because it's a city center. He saw this sign that said interview, and he needed a job. So he was asking around, you know. He he asked what's being offered here. And, of course, was quite disappointed to find that um, a job indeed wasn't being offered. I did at one point in my early years of teaching, because I do find this word interview to be on the odd side. It's in the tradition, and we just use it, and that's how it is. But, you know, in the beginning especially, it just struck me as really, really odd. So at one point... I corrected it when it was printed out, interview, and I I wrote in interview. But um, someone didn't like this and changed it to interview, so I decided to go with the flow. (laughs) (laughs) Habitual planning is very compelling. It's very seductive. It can feel, as we know, very pleasant. Planning to get things done is oftentimes much more planning than actually getting things done. You know, much more. Planning to do something nice oftentimes can be much more enjoyable than actually what we end up doing. And that will be an interesting thing as you leave here, to just notice in a more poignant way. The function of planning, one of the functions of, of habitual planning, is the effort to avoid boredom. It's sometimes to use up time until we get to what we think is more important than what is happening right here and now. You know, in a sense, to get to the real thing, to get to what we think is going to be more pleasurable or more, um, more involving or more enjoyable or more meaningful than what is happening right here and now. It's sometimes the effort to avoid loneliness Sometimes we might notice that we conjure up relationships in our minds as a way to avoid loneliness. In other words, some of our chatting, some of our describing things to others is a way to feel a sense of connectedness. Yeah? It's always, it's, it's often, as has been said, a way to try to secure a future. It's a futile effort to control the uncontrollable. And what has been said is that there is only one way to happiness, and that is to cease worrying about things that are beyond the power of our will. 
Habitual planning is actually not planning at all. You know, we call it this elegant term, planning, and it sounds really good. And then we notice, ah, planning is happening, planning is happening, planning is happening. Actually, it's worry, you know? It's either a worry or a fantasy, you know, when it's habitual. Calling it what it actually is is always a good idea in practice. Because if we don't, that's when we cling and hold on and think that there's something of value in it. Whereas if we can see things as they are, there is a greater willingness to let go. There's a deeper understanding that it's not going to bring about any degree of lasting happiness. Momentary pleasure, of course. You know, kind of um, thinking that we're doing something meaningful or figuring something out. But in terms of lasting happiness, not so. And so if we see into uh, habitual planning, worrying more fully, fantasy more clearly, then there is a greater degree of willingness, of openness to see and to let go. It's easier to let go if we know what it is. We're not willing or even able to let go if we think that it's necessary, if we're behind it. There is obviously going to be the tendency to encourage it and to perpetuate it. We think we need it in some way. There are two ways to discern for oneself whether planning is necessary and can be called planning or whether it's habitual and is a worry or a fantasy. One way to look is to see is it repetitive? You know, has one planned more than once? More than one plan is a worry. Seriously, more than one plan is actually a worry or a fantasy. Yeah. So to notice that, to see that, to see if we can be aware of this. So when it's repetitive, when we're going over and over the same thing, you know, the same so-called plan, and we've, we've um, hit a million, you know, what is behind that? What is the feeling tone? And that's the second thing that is really helpful, is to see if we can notice the feeling tone in what we're calling a plan, to see if we can notice the anxiety or the desire that is accompanying the thought of planning. If it's a worry, there is bound to be an unpleasant feeling tone. It might be hugely unpleasant. It might be just a very tiny flutter somewhere. One can notice just a really small, unpleasant flutter. If it's a fantasy, there will be a pleasant feeling tone. And it might be not hugely pleasant or wonderfully pleasant, but just a little bit pleasant. Planning itself, real planning, is actually neutral. In looking more closely at worry, we worry a lot. Many of us are very deeply conditioned to worry. We worry about our health. We worry about the health of others, our loved ones. We worry about our friends. We worry about our our families. We worry about our possessions, our income. We worry about the world. We worry about the state of the world. We worry a lot about ourselves. Something that is interesting in being in this kind of environment 
where there is the encouragement to not have to sustain eye contact, is that sometimes we notice that we're going away, we're going around looking into the eyes of others, asking, are we okay? You know, we're looking for validation when we look in the eyes of others. And sometimes it's wonderful to just get a real break from that. You know, just to get a break from that kind of looking, am I okay, am I all right? The degree of concern and worry about ourselves, about how we are being perceived oftentimes. Oftentimes, we see our life, and seeing our life, it moves into practice, into this having to be good, you know, worrying about whether or not we are good or not, whether we are being good or not. I think it is so essential to see the practice as a process of knowing our own goodness, allowing inner goodness to emerge. So it's not a question, am I good or not? It's emerging, an emerging of natural goodness from within. And I'd like to, um, to read this poem from Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Wherever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. When we contract, when we clench up, when we get involved in this question of, am I good, am I doing well enough, there is this clenching, there is this catch on the heart, remembering, reminding ourselves that this is a process of allowing inner goodness to emerge, allows for an inner relaxation, allows for the heart to relax and to regain itself to regenerate itself, to teach us its own inherent goodness. Oftentimes, we are very concerned about how we are being perceived by others. Someone named Ethel Barrett said, we would worry less about what others think of us if we realized how seldom they do. (laughs) There there, there, There is some truth to this. You know, there is actually some truth to this, that um, oftentimes because we feel like the center of everything, we think that other people are thinking about us when they're actually thinking about themselves, you know? (laughs) So it's kind of trying to keep a sense of perspective. Can we experience the anxiety or fear underlying thoughts of worry? Can we ask ourselves, is it necessary to worry? Will worrying help the situation? Will will worrying help situations that really indeed are worrisome? Not to think that situations aren't worrisome at times. Will 
engaging in worry actually help? Is it worthwhile? Will it help ourselves or others? This is something by Mahako Sananda. We may notice that the vase of flowers on the table is very beautiful, but the flowers never tell us of their beauty. We never hear them boast of their sweet scent. When a person has realized liberation, it is the same. He or she does not have to say anything. We can sense his beauty, her sweetness, just by being there. There is no need to worry about the past or the future. The secret of happiness is to be entirely present with what is in front of you, to live fully in the present moment. You can't go back and reshape the past. It's gone. You can't dictate the future, so there is no need to worry. The next time I fly in an airplane, who knows what will happen? Maybe I will arrive safely, or maybe I won't. When we make plans, we can make them only in the present moment. This is the only moment we can control. We can love this moment and use it well. Past suffering can never harm us if we truly care for the present. Take care of the present, and the future will be well. The Dharma is always in the present, and the present is the mother of the future. Take care of the mother, and the mother will take care of her child. So this, this is very, very different than worrying. This is true concern for life, and concern is not worry. The Dalai Lama said, If you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, then there is also no need to worry. (laughs) Generally, what we are worrying about is not happening right now. Sometimes yes, and then Gathering our inner resources will guide us and help us and give us the energy to know what to do. But oftentimes, what we are worrying about is not actually happening right here and now. The practice allows us to develop the confidence that we'll know what to do when it's needed. It frees up our energy for the sake of wise and intelligent and compassionate action. When it is called for, when it is asked, when we are called. Oftentimes, we worry about others instead of caring for others. And sometimes we think that it's our obligation, it's our duty to worry about others. It's very, very different than care. It's very, very different than concern. Sometimes we think at least it shows that we care, that we're not indifferent You know, that we're doing something, you know, by worrying. At least we're doing something. Actually, not so. Actually better, much, much better to send metta when we find ourselves worrying about someone. You know, to replace our worry with thoughts of metta. May you be safe. May you be at ease. May you find comfort within your heart. You know, some way of replacing those thoughts of worry that have a life of their own with something that actually has a beneficial effect. Habitual planning is quite exhausting. And 
we need the precious energy that we use for worry for the sake of awareness. So we really can't afford to worry. It's not an indulgence that we can afford in our life, in our daily life. It's actually like doing everything many times over instead of just once. You know, so exhausting, so tiring. Even if it's a lovely thing to do, to do it a million times is tiring. The best of things instead of just doing it in the present moment. And of course, the kinds of things that we often think about and plan about are not all that uh, fun or enjoyable or pleasant. And yet we're, we're doing it in our mind. You know? It's as if we're really doing it when we can't be, when we're not. Hafiz said, Now that all your worry has proved such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? <laughs> hmm. Reminding ourselves that we are here, wherever we are, we are here. Always, we are only right here. In our daily life, we are in our daily life. On retreat, we are on retreat. Right here and now, we can only be here. This is what is possible. This is reality. Not, I am here as a concept. Not, holding things in this way. But when we find ourselves worried, caught up in the cycle of worry, and we find it very, very difficult to break away, even sometimes knowing that it's unnecessary and habitual, just simply look around. Where are you? What room are you in? What's happening around you? What's the air like? What's the temperature? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it just a little bit hot, a little bit cold? What beings are around you? Are you alone? Are you with particular people? Um, What's the air feel like? Uh, What do your feet feel like touching the floor? What do your sitting bones feel like touching the cushion? Feeling and experiencing what is, being aware of sounds, chirping of a bird, sound of traffic wherever one is, coughs, You know, just kind of reorienting oneself in the here and now, using the environment as a way to wake oneself up out of this private world of worry. Asking ourselves, are we preoccupied with planning in an effort to avoid? The practice is gradually strengthening our hearts so that there is not so much need to avoid Oftentimes we avoid because it's the only thing we can do. You know, it's not a failure. It's not a problem. It's really the best that we can do. But to practice is to find other pathways, other ways of being, gradually strengthening our heart so that we don't so much need to avoid our lives, developing the inner confidence that this too and you can put anything in that this too place. This too is workable. In clinging to habitual planning, nothing new can happen. It's totally limited. Now, there's a way in which we are limiting life because nothing new can happen. There's no fresh air. There's no receptivity. We're clogging up the airways so that we can only hear static. 
There's no new information com- coming in. There's no way that there can be insight or learning. It's a closed system. It might be strange at first to not cling. It's sometimes in our practice a little bit odd when we find ourselves here and not clinging. Someone once wrote to um, Tofu Roshi, otherwise known as Susan Moon, who um, is a really wonderful guru. I will read you the letter. Dear Tofu Roshi, I am a busy homemaker and single mother of four bouncing boys. For several years now, I have been getting up every morning at five to sit zazen. This has changed my life. During my morning meditation, I am able to do my menu planning, make a mental shopping list, (laughs) figure out which children will have their baths that night, whose turn it is to take out the garbage, and what color the living room curtains will be. It's a real great time to work out positive approaches to family problems. Thanks to Zazen, my family life has improved tremendously. We have planned for together time, and my children are clean and well-nourished until recently. But now, something is going very wrong. Lately, when I sit down to meditate, my mind goes completely blank. I can't seem to concentrate on the ingredients of a tuna casserole. I become forgetful of the future and find myself paying attention only to the most trivial things like the tickly feeling I get in my nostrils from the air passing in and out. Sometimes I even get this weird dizzy feeling and forget who I am. Nothing seems to have any particular meaning anymore. Am I losing my mind? Signed, spaced out mom. Dear mom, deep splendor is nothing special and that is why you have not recognized it but many people would give their eye teeth for that tickly feelings in the nostrils. You know, sometimes we don't even know that we're here, you know, in our clinging to the past, in our clinging to the future. We carry worlds around with us that are private, that are of our own making. In being mindful, there is a releasing of energy. There is an entering into life itself. I think our biggest question, the one that is most important, is to ask, what is the quality of our heart right now? When we find ourselves caught in worry or in fantasy, when we find ourselves caught, lost, in thoughts about the past and thoughts about the future, cutting it with this thought that gives us great guidance, which is this question, what is the quality of my heart right now? And to ask in a very kind and a gentle way. You know, it's not a question that um, we want to uh, hear any degree of harshness being answered back. Not at all. It's to check, it's to notice, it's to see, is there open-heartedness? Is there kind-heartedness? What is happening? Where is there imbalance? Where is there a sense of being askew? Over and over again in life, what is the quality of my heart right now? It really breaks right through, cuts right through the habit of worry, the habit of fantasy. When planning is pleasant, as I said before, this is where fantasy comes in. Fantasy is an effort 
to not experience our life in the here and now. It's true that we will be able to actualize at least some of our plans, some of the plans that perhaps we've made this week, but we will always be right here and right now. And just to kind of paraphrase a a very um, familiar saying, today is the tomorrow you fantasized about yesterday. Always so, always now. It can be quite difficult at times to um, not fantasize and to not dwell in pleasure. I remember uh, a retreat many years ago. I, I think it was a it was a three month retreat, and I was on my own here, and um, I was really having a terrible time. And I got a postcard. Someone sent me a gave me a postcard that happened to be from my father. And the postcard was kind of along the lines of, you know, what in the world are you doing there? (laughs) And something along the lines of, your mother and I are having fun right now. (laughs) And it's not that I wanted to be having fun with them, but just this kind of, you know, your mother and I are having fun, and this this is the way we want to be in life. And I was having such a terrible time. I mean, a really horrendous time. You know, and thinking, why am I here? Why would I want to let go of um, of pleasure? Why would I want to let go of fantasy? You know, that's that's it's as good as it gets right now. You know? <laughs> and then beginning, beginning, beginning to see the limitations of fantasy. Beginning, just beginning to see that it's impermanent. It comes and it goes, and it doesn't sustain. It doesn't deeply sustain us in the way that we hope that it will. So in looking more deeply, we do see its limits. We see that it's impermanent, that it's a poor substitute for joy, that it pales in comparison. Iris Murdoch said, when fantasy ends, human liberation begins. Letting go of habitual planning opens up the possibility of experiencing joy in the here and now. Instead of planning to practice in some other moment, oftentimes in our daily life, this is what we do. We plan to practice at another point. I don't know, maybe you noticed it during this week as well with something super enticing, really compelling, really pulling one in as a worry or a fantasy. And I'll practice, you know, there's many more sittings to come. I'll practice next sitting. I'll be really good in in the walking at at 4 o'clock or something. (laughs) Planning to practice. In our daily life, this really just doesn't work at all. It just doesn't work because it really undermines us. It really undermines this path that we are on, this path of the heart. And we, in this kind of perspective, we're not actually taking impermanence to heart. And we do need to, because this is the reality of things. It is not easy to practice letting go of worry and of fantasy. It's a very, very deep conditioning. And because of this, we need to apply great kindness and great wisdom. Don't be afraid to apply wise effort to worry and to fantasy. The kindness is in recognizing that Worry and fantasy arise, habitual planning arises, and is out of our control. It's not our fault. So don't worry about worry. 
you know? Don't, don't hear this talk and then start worrying about how much you're worrying. Don't worry about the times when you fall into fantasy. It arises. It's out of our control. It's the understanding, the willingness to go in the direction that our hearts are calling that makes all the difference in the world. The wisdom in, is in seeing that worry and fantasy are dukkha because of their impermanent nature. They're limited If we see it as it is, if we see a worry as a worry, a fantasy as a fantasy, it's a whole lot easier to let go and not continue, not perpetuate. We learn to nourish ourselves on the present moment instead of trying to nourish ourselves on thoughts of worry and thoughts of of, um, fantasy, on thoughts of planning. Instead of being dependent on planning for nourishment, we find ourselves nourished by the here and now. They do not lament over the past. We do not hanker for things in the future. We maintain ourselves on whatever comes. Therefore, we are serene. And... Let me just end with a very short, perfect, perfect poem. (laughs) Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Let's just sit. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings rest in awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.